Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast for water treaters by water treaters, where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi, everybody. Trace Blackmore here, the host of Scaling Up, and I hope that you are ready for a great show today. A lot of people have asked about, hey, how do I get the word out that I'm in this industry and people start to know who I am. And probably the easiest way to do that is with social media. And social media is is a very easy way for you to either write an article or, or something to educate your audience on what's going on there. And then when people start searching for certain topics, they are going to find your information there. Well, a gentleman who's done just that is Chris Golden of Taylor Technologies. Now, Chris wasn't trying to get his name out there because quite frankly, his name is already out there. But Chris has had years of water treatment experience and then he transitioned over to a test kit company. And now his expertise is in what we test for day after day. He does a great job with that, and he also does a great job with sharing the knowledge that he's gathered over his years of experience. And if you are connected with him on LinkedIn, you've seen some of the articles that he's written that tell us about, you know, how do you know if something is being treated properly? And more importantly, what happens if you don't treat it properly? So he's got a bunch of articles like that, and I thought it would be very interesting to have him on the show and talk about, one, what inspired him to do those articles, and then also what those articles say. So I hope you enjoy my interview with Taylor Technologies' Chris Golden. Oh, and he's a CWT, if I didn't mention that. So I know a lot of people out there are doing the CWT challenge, so hopefully you will enjoy this interview. Let me restate it with Chris Golden. CWT. Today, my lab partner is Chris Golden of Taylor Technologies. And I've known Chris for uh, quite a while. Uh, We did some training together and uh, have worked together with AWT. And I'm just so excited to have him on Scaling Up today. How are you, Chris? Oh, man, I'm doing great. Doing great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I know you have a wealth of water treatment knowledge in addition to a wealth of testing knowledge. So I think we're going to put all of that to good use today. What do you say? That sounds like a great thing. Well, excellent. Well, uh, for those of you out in the Scaling Up Nation that do not know Chris, rather than me introducing Chris, I think you could do a better job. Tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Oh, boy. Well, okay. It all started in central Pennsylvania. (laughs) outside of Reading, Pennsylvania, and went to a a, a nice high school that offered a a broad range of subjects. Anything you wanted to study, you could do it. If you wanted to be a a secretary, you could be a secretary. If you want to be a plumber, you could be a plumber. If you want to be a chemical engineer, you can start on that path. So I was real lucky to go to a real good, high-quality high school uh, outside of Reading, Pennsylvania. And then for whatever reason, it very strange is when I was early in high school, for some reason, I wanted to be a chemical engineer. (laughs) kind of weird. And it just, uh, I thought putting together chemistry and engineering was something that really fascinated me. And I had a chance to basically prepare myself in high school to go to college and get into a a good university that was noted for its chemical engineering program. So I did that. I graduated in four years to the day, (laughs) which is, which is something I'm kind of proud of. It was pretty tough curriculum. And that was in uh, 1981 and a long time ago in a place far, far away. And uh, after college, 
I ended up joining a steel mill of all things, and they put me into technical sales. And that kind of steered me down the path of, of where I'm at now because chemical engineer really wanted to be, when I was getting out of college, a water treater. It was so weird. How I learned about the water treatment industry was I was getting out of school and I was interviewing with a bunch of companies. And here was this one company called Nalco. And I looked at the job description and said, man, that's something I'd like to do. And uh, at that time, they weren't interested in me. But that steel mill experience, along with the uh, engineering degree, eight years later, they were interested in, in me coming to join them. So that's how I got into the water treatment industry. Well, excellent. What in high school happened to make you say, you know, that's the industry that I want to be in? Um, it was really the, the chemical portion of it. I enjoyed chemistry, took a couple of years of chemistry in high school and enjoyed that. And my older brother, who's two years older than me, went off to Penn State to study civil engineering. And I just learned about engineering through him and got a chance to kind of put the two together, not really knowing where it was going to lead me, but it just sounded like a, like a fun, interesting thing to do. There you go. So you, you've been around in water treatment for a while. So I love asking this question because I know you've got to have a great answer. What's the weirdest water treatment story you have? What's the weirdest water treatment story? Oh, how about there's this one system down at a steel mill and it had some Dynasan filters on it, which are continuously flushing filters and they always bleed water out of the system. Well, in the summertime, we didn't have any problems maintaining our cycles of concentration because the blowdown was, was low enough that, that it would work. But in the wintertime, when we took some of the heat off, well, we couldn't get our cycles of concentration up. We were bleeding too much water out of the system. We thought the culprit was the Dynasand filters. So for a couple of years, I'll, I'll admit, we went on thinking that the Dynasands were the problem until one of my engineers came up to me and put his arm around me and said, you're not going to believe what I found last week. And I said, what's that? They had tapped into the cooling water system for a hose bib to wash down the floors. Nice. So that's where the water was going. They were, they were using my expensive cooling water to wash down their floors. Who would ever thought? I had a similar story that that reminds me of. Uh, we couldn't find a leak in a closed loop system. And it was a hot water system. And we were at a, a school system in, uh, in, in Virginia. I won't mention the one. We couldn't find a leak. And the engineer says, there is no leak. Trace, you're crazy. And we were walking around and walking around. And, and finally, we were just there on the right, right day. And there was the janitor who was washing the van with hot loop water. He said, yeah, that, that's hot water. That's hot loop water. And he goes, well, yeah, it's cold out here. So uh, that's where the leak was. Oh my gosh, that's hysterical. That's great. <laughs> so, and there's probably 50 more just like that, right? Well, I just I just thought of one real quick one. It was it was at my automotive carpet plant, just what you said, co closed cooling water system, chilled water system, and we kept having to dump nitrite after nitrite after nitrite into the system. Finally put a water meter on it, and I asked the guys to watch the water meter, record the number each day, and we come to find out that Monday through Friday when the plant's operating, the water usage rate is real high. Saturday and Sunday, when you shut down, it's real low. Oh, that's interesting. The maintenance guys were tired of me hounding about there's got to be a leak in the system until one day after a few months this has gone on, I, I walk into the maintenance shack and all of them got their heads down. I go, what's going on? Uh, we found the leak. We found where that water is going. When they plumbed in the new bathrooms up on the second floor, they used the chilled water for the toilets. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. The uh, line was close, plumbing into that. 
Yeah, there it is. Good deal, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's awfully cold, this toilet. Yes. So, anyway. It's it, it uh, nicely. So obviously with all these stories, you know this because you treat systems. But recently you've been very active in social media and you've put a series of articles out stating what happens if you don't treat those systems. So why did you decide to, to put those out on LinkedIn? Well, the, the beginnings of all this was back when I had a power plant. My power plant was putting in uh, an auxiliary boiler for when they were down. And the boss of the plant said, hey, well, let's use this as some retraining of the guys on boiler water chemistry. Uh, Now, all these guys were were really experienced uh, operators in the plant. So I was trying to think, how can I make this interesting for them? Because I know what's going to happen. We're going to get in a room and I'm going to start talking about oxygen and and scale and and their their eyes are going to glaze over and it's not going to be very effective. So how can I make this different? Well, I decided that, hey, what if I told him did a class on what would happen if you didn't treat this boiler? What would fail first? And so I designed a whole training program off of that. And it just went over fantastically. So, okay, what would happen if we didn't treat, uh, didn't treat this boiler? What was, what's going to fail first? What's going to be the first failure mechanism, which is oxygen corrosion. And we went down the list and it was a great interactive class. The guys responded so well to it. And then what, what we do is at a tail, you know, we do a lot of, uh, a lot of training and education in, in the marketplace and, and to, to all of our industries. We, we certainly do give back a lot. And so we uh, have a, posts that we do every week we do one week we do industrial the other week we do pool and spa so when i'm writing the industrial one i'm coming up with some ideas for these posts well i remembered back in time to that time when i did those classes and realized hey this is a gold mine every week i struggle to come up with a topic to talk about why well, can take this one th- these two topics cooling water and boiler water and make it into a series and i've got two or three months worth of material so it, it all seemed to come together to make a lot of sense to do this. Well, excellent. Well, how about we start off talking about what happens if you don't treat a cooling system? Well, if you let's let's talk about the cooling system first. You know, cooling towers. Hopefully, the audience knows what cooling towers are. Basically, they're systems for removing removing heat from a process, whether it's a a chiller, or an air compressor, a, a, you know, in my world, a blast furnace or a power plant's condenser. And that water comes raining over the cooling tower, and there's this induced draft that goes up, goes across the water, evaporates some water, and that evaporation, the heat evaporation, which is like a thousand BTUs per pound, cools the rest of the bulk water that's in there. And in the meantime, when that pure water is evaporating, what it's doing is it's leaving behind all its dissolved solids. They're cycling up, and now we got chemistry starting to play play a part in it. And uh, like I, I I like to say, it's chemical reactions are governed by three things, time, temperature, and concentration. And what we've got is some temperature in the tower. And now as we're moving that pure water and leaving the dissolved solids behind, we start to get some concentration in there. And you get any one of those out of whack and you're going to get some uh, some bad things happening. So if that water in that tower is left to just continue to concentrate and we don't throw any treatment chemicals at it, well, there's going to be some chemical reactions going to be occurring that's going to affect our process. And primarily, it's going to be going to be scale formation. So we want to make sure we protect against scale. And, uh, le- you know, let me go back for something. Left untreated in a cooling water system, given that we've got this air raining down on the 
uh, rain down through the cooling tower and pulling a draft through it. Well, anything that happens to be in the air is going to get trapped in those in those water droplets. And one of the things we worry about is bacteria. And uh, bacteria, if, if you've been around cooling towers, you know it's a hot subject, Legionella, people getting harmed supposedly from cooling water having uh, containing Legionella. So what the first thing we want to make sure that we do is we protect against uh, bacteria. We want to we want to make sure that we're throwing a biocide into those towers to make sure that we're killing all the bacteria and and it's safe water. So that's really going to bacteria and left unchecked and untreated. It's going to affect the cooling water process, the the people around it, the health of the water. So we want to make sure that we we treat for the bacteria. But if we don't treat the tower, also we're we're susceptible to scale. Scale is going to occur as those. Uh, dissolved solids continue to concentrate with the pure water leaving the the system, and uh, they're going to get to the point where they're going to want to come out of solution, where the calcium alkalinity levels are high enough that they're going to come out of solution, and where they love to come out of solution is in heat transfer areas like heat exchangers, where we want the water to be doing its work. That's where that scale is going to come out of solution and form on the surfaces and hurt our cooling water system. So those are the two real main ways that in current industrial cooling water systems that left untreated, they're going to affect us. All right. So how do you get a customer from saying, you know, I've never had this budget item of water treatment. I've never treated this system before. Now you're telling me I have to treat these systems for the reasons that you just mentioned. And now I've got to put money in the budget. How do you have that conversation? Oh, that's, that's a great conversation. And I got to tell you, some of my best friends in my plants were the controllers, were the financial people because they knew the financial implications. This is where we're really getting into knowing a customer system or a prospect system is very important. Let's talk about a prospect system. They may say, well, I've never treated for for what you're talking about. Why would I want to spend any money? Well, now the investigation begins. You say, well, tell me about the equipment in your plant that the cooling water cools. And typically you're going to say, well, we really don't know much about it. Well, hey, can I do a survey? Let me walk around your plant, take a look at the equipment you have in your plant, and come back to you with a little bit of information. And uh, that's where we are, the experts on the equipment and experts on the cooling water systems. And uh, we need to be those experts in the cooling water system. So we go into the plant, we take a server, we take a look at the equipment being cooled. Let's say there's a bunch of, uh, of uh, heat exchangers that are in the plant. Okay, that's a good spot to go in. Well, let's say they have a compressor. A compressor is a very interesting thing because of all the heat exchange equipment that's being cooled by that cooling water, the compressors tend to have the highest heat flux. So what does that mean? That's where a lot of heat is being removed. That's probably where the cooling water is stressed and has its highest temperature. That's your highest probable piece of equipment for scaling. So if you, if you do a little research and take a look at the, at the compressor or take a look at those heat exchangers, start watching and, and tracking some flow rates through them, start watching pressure drops across them, talk with the maintenance guys about, hey, what does it take to run that compressor? Oh, every two months we got to take it down, we got to rot it out for the scale that's in there. Okay, that's interesting. When do you do that? Oh, we do that on Saturdays. Oh, you get paid overtime for that? Well, yeah, we get paid overtime for that. Well, there's a cost associated with not doing proper water treatment. So you go around, you collect all these little items uh, that are costs that they may not recognize. Um, I, I have to tell really a, a kind of a funny story uh, while we're in the middle of this. There was one plant that I was uh, 
doing a survey on and, and wanting to win the business and they're going to go out for bid. And I talked with the maintenance guys and I said, Hey, tell me about the systems. Oh, well, each year we spend about ten or $12,000 retubing the chiller tubes. What are the chiller tubes made out of? They're made out of metallurgy. And I said, really? So I t- start taking a look at their uh, chlorine residual rates, which were quite high, quite high for a, tor- for a normal system. And so basically what I, what I did was I wrote into my proposal, hey, look, you know, I could do away with those chiller tube replacements with the chlorine monitor. We'll monitor the levels at a lower level, and you'll eliminate that cost. So there was a $10,000 cost that basically my program got rid of. There you go. Straight to the bottom line. Straight to the bottom line. And when you have those conversations with maintenance guys, they kind of look at you like, oh, okay. But you have that conversation with the controller, with with the financial guy in the plant. He says, "Uh, when can we start? Yeah, not to mention the downtime that they had to do all of that. The downtime they had to do, right. And and the extra labor costs and all the – oh. Absolutely. So you really have to dig into it, find out what problems the plants are plants have. And if they have no problems, well, there's probably no opportunity and the guy's right. But chances are you dig enough and you talk to enough people, you'll be able to find out the implications of poor or non-existent water treatment. And then you just got to put uh, pencil to paper and, and total it up and do it on an economic basis. That's great advice. So let's move over to a boiler. What happens if you don't treat a boiler? Well, if you don't treat a boiler, what's probably going to happen is the first thing that's going to kill you is oxygen corrosion. The oxygen corrosion, because oxygen corrosion is an interesting phenomenon where rather than taking a little bit of metal off all the surfaces that are inside the piping, it will, it will bore in through and, and gouge, the, gouge the steel and quickly penetrate the wall of the pipe. So it's a very quick-acting corrosion. So that's the first thing that's going to hurt you uh, is oxygen corrosion. The uh, next thing that's going to hurt you is going to be if you don't treat the condensate, you're going to have a condensate that's very pure water. It's very hot, and it's going to have a very low pH because the carbon dioxide is going to redissolve back into the condensate and make carbonic acid, and that's going to be low in pH, and it's going to, again, gouge the pipes. But before those pipes start failing on the condensate system, which may be, not be something you're too concerned with, those corrosion products of iron and copper are going to come back into the boiler water system, they're going to plate on the tubes of the boiler, and they're going to basically insulate that tube from the boiler water and cause it to overheat and eventually fail. So it's the corrosion products from the condensate that are going to come back. They're the second thing that's going to, to get you. And the third thing that's going to get you, if you if, even if you have a softener on your system, there's still trace amount of hard, hardness that's coming into the system. If they don't have a, a softener system like I saw at a steel mill down in, down in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, that scale is just going to accumulate in the boiler until it re- retards heat transfer surfaces. And again, it's going to cause a, a failure of the boiler tube through overheating. So obviously those problems are much, 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 much more expensive than actually having a real water treatment program. Oh, it, it sure is. And in the meantime, it's, it's very hard to convince uh, some boiler people that haven't had treatment that they really need to do treatment. When it, when the two major things I talked about with the, with the scale and with the corrosion product coming back and, and causing an insulation layer in the tubes, what's going to happen is you're going to have to burn more fuel in order to make the same amount of steam. You need to burn more fuel to make the same amount of steam. 
And there was one plant, uh, the automotive carpet plant, that allowed me to take a look at the records of their steam production and their fuel usage and their burning natural gas. Well, I took those numbers on a monthly basis and I took the steam and divided by the fuel usage and it came out to a factor very close to one. Well, you could do that at plants that don't use water treatment. If you say, well, do me a favor, uh, let me have a little access to your steam production rates and your fuel usages, which shouldn't be anything that's real of concern or, or uh, anything that you wouldn't want to share with anybody. And let's take a look at how it goes over time. And do you have these over time? Well, if they're not treating their boiler, then they are probably uh, losing fuel efficiencies in their boiler. And that steam production divided by the fuel number is going to decrease to uh, a lower number. And you chart that out over time and you say, well, let's take a look at how much extra fuel you're using. What do you usually spend? Well, here it looks like you're, you're using uh, 20% more fuel now than you were back a couple of years ago. What's your fuel budget? It's probably in the millions at a lot of plants. And mm-hmm. that greatly outweighs that, that fuel efficiency loss greatly outweighs any water treatment you'll ever do at that plant. Chris, how do you go back and prove that everything you said did come to be true? Well, that's a great question. You've got to know your plant. You have to know the critical pieces of equipment in the plant and which is going to be affected by poor water treatment before the other one. So you might want to take a look at uh, critical heat exchangers. Uh, I talked about the compressors going to have a heat exchanger. Look at the temperature in, temperature out. Look at the flow rates. And, and monitor that and include that in your data collection in the plant. Figure out which piece of equipment may be affected by poor water treatment. And if you chart that out and show that there's no decrease in performance, uh, chances are they're going to say, okay, yeah, you're doing the right thing. The other thing to do is to validate a program. If you've got a, a system where the water, coin water is corrosive in nature, corrosion coupons are a great tool. Corrosion coupons are a great tool. They're pieces of, of metal that are different metallurgies like uh, copper and iron, mild steel, stainless steel, aluminum, whatever you might have in your, your systems. You put them into the system, hopefully with a corrosion coupon rack, which is readily available from uh, equipment manufacturers. And uh, you leave them in there for 30 days or 90 days. And, and typically you leave them in there for, for 30 days. And they're pre-weighed. You put them in the system. You allow them to, to be in that flowing water system for 30 days. You take them out, and you get a lab to weigh them for you. And you compare the previous weight, the, the new weight versus the old weight, and you figure out how much metal you've lost from those systems. Uh, corrosion coupons are an excellent way to validate your program. Have you ever used corrosion coupons during the survey part? of uh, an investigation? Yes, I did. I even, I used corrosion coupons and I even used a corator. I even used a corator and it was for a uh, continuous caster at a steel mill. And they were having all kinds of problems with uh, corrosion in their system. And uh, the current supplier was not using corrosion coupons. Well, I said to them, you know, okay, in, in investigation, discovery, what, what are your problems? Oh, boy, we have problems with corrosion all through the system. We're losing parts. Well, do you do corrosion coupons? No. What are they? Well, let me put some in, and, and I explained it to them. And I said, well, you know, you're looking for something under one mil per year. That happens to be like one of the one of – the, uh, and, and uh, the Cooling Water Subcommittee of AWT, by the way, has done a fantastic job with discussing – corrosion coupons and best practices for corrosion coupons. So you may want to take a look at the AWT member section under uh, cooling water for corrosion, uh, corrosion coupons. Anyway, 
Uh, once I put them in and I found very high corrosion rates, the supplier ended up putting them, them in too. And, uh, oh, wow, look, we do have uh, a system. Now, I'm going to, in all honesty, I did not win the system. There was a whole lot of other stuff going on. But I, I did use those corrosion coupons effectively to increase my status at that plant. And I ended up winning another business at the plant. There you go. So I would be remiss if I did not ask you some testing questions because you are not only a water treater, you are a test kit guru. So let's go back to the boiler. How important is temperature when we're running tests? T temperature is very important when running tests. And, and just in particular, the boiler water sulfite. And one of the uses for channel locks besides turning bolts is to hold hot bottles old bottles. Yes, absolutely. So, and boy, if I had all my channel locks back that I left in people's plants, I think I'd be a rich person. But um, so we're so used to fire tube boilers, using the channel locks to hold a bottle underneath uh, a sample pour, which is probably the site class, and filling up that bottle with hot water and then using that for testing. Well, if you use that water that's, let's say, at 200 degrees Fahrenheit and you go do a sulfide test, What's going to happen is you basically cook the indicator and you're going to use a lot more drops to get to the end point than you really need to have. So you're going to think that you have a good amount of sulfite in the boiler water, but you don't. You really need to properly cool down that sample and, and cool down the sample. You could use that same bottle if it's like an algae bottle and, and a nice tight cap. Fill it up all the way to the brim, rinse, rinse your cap, put the cap on tightly, and then just dunk that in a, in a, a, a pail of water, a five-gallon pail of water in a sink with filled with cold water and let it come down to room temperature which is you know 80 to 90 degrees fahrenheit and then test your sample but temperature is very important and remember as, as the temperature of a water goes up its density goes down so you'll think that you have uh, a lot less analytes in your water than you really do because of the, te the density difference you know, and, and the folks out there in the Scaling Up Nation, I would urge you to experiment with that. Do a cooled sample, do an un uncooled sample, and you will see the difference. Chris, I know you did a video where you actually brought some tests that you did into some training that you did that I, I want to say it was like 40 parts per million off, or it was, it was huge. Oh, it was, yes, it was, it, was a, it was a big number off. I, I believe it was more than 40 off. I think my... Real test result was around 10 drops, and the one that was the hot sample was around 30 drops. So 30 times the 5 is 150. And There you go. You can take a look at that uh, on, on Taylor Technologies' website. We've got a lot of videos on there. It's also in the AWT members-only section. I did a webinar on testing, and it's kind of in the middle of that, so you'd always be able to access it there. Well, in addition to the articles we just discussed that you put up on LinkedIn, you also put one on Azol, and you are a very strong proponent of testing Azol. So first off, what the heck is this Azol, and why should we test for it? Well, the Azol is the yellow metal corrosion inhibitor, so it's protecting your copper metallurgy in your system. And uh, without it, you're going to get accelerated copper corrosion rates. You're going to get those corrosion products come into solution and then go in those heat transfer areas and mess up your system. That's what the azoles do. And their tolytriazole and BZT are the main two azoles that are out there. So why do we need to test for them? Well, back in the days before, before Trace and I ever got into water treatment, uh, they used to just feed non-oxidizing biocides into the system. And that was standard. So you might have one or two non-oxidizing biocides. They're your glutaraldehydes, DBNPAs, isothazolin type of chemicals. And they're, they're basically, they're poisons. So that used to, they used to feed those about once or twice a week. 
and not be worried about bacteria levels that were 10,000 accounts and below. So now comes along this little thing called Legionella. We start worrying about this Legionella bacteria, and they happen to look at cooling water systems and all water systems and say, hey, look, there's some Legionella in these, in these cooling towers. Now, i gotta got to preface this with uh, probably Legionella, it, it's not coming from cooling towers. It's coming from other systems. So it just happens to be that cooling towers have a target on their back, and they're an easy prey, and, and, they, and they spotlight them. So the CDC gets into it and says, you know what, best practices, you should feed an oxidizing biocide once a day to over a part per million, one part per million. Well, what are these oxidizing biocides? Well, these oxidizing biocides are, are chlorine compounds and bromine compounds. Well, chlorine compounds and bromine compounds do not get along with azoles. They, they tend to tear them down. Now, those non-oxidizing biocides, they never worked on the azoles. They never had any reaction with the azoles. The azoles were perfectly content to be swimming around in the water, not affected by the non-oxidizing biocides. But feed an oxidizing biocide in the water, and your, your azole level is going to decrease. Uh, I actually had a, 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 there's a quick story of a, of a power plant that I had that was a cogen that the other process that was at that plant was a fish farm. It was a fish farm. So what they would do is they'd split off part of the water going into the cooling tower and run it through the fish farm. Well, the fish farm would the fish farm water effluent would come back into the cooling tower system, bringing all its nitrates and and all its all its uh, biological activity back into the cooling tower. Well, they, wow! Yeah, and on top of that, did they not like you? <laughs> I took this I took the system over from from before, and it was it was one heck of a thing. So they had a copper metallurgy in their condenser in their critical piece of equipment. In their condenser, and they used to retube that condenser about every five, five or so years. Spent a lot of money to do it. Well, here's what was going on: was then they go like, oh well, okay, the chlorine's hurting the condenser, so let's feed some azole in there to protect the condenser. Well, they had to feed a lot of azole in there to counteract all of the chlorine that they had to feed in to take care of the biological activity that was coming from the fish farm. You know, we we're spinning in a horrible circle here. And so what we had was a copper corator, which is a corrosion monitor, continuous corrosion monitor on the system to monitor the, the copper corrosion rates. Well, I came in one day, and, and what I typically do in my service visits is I meet with the engineer and say, what should I look at today? Do you have any concerns before I get my normal run? Well, the lead engineer said to me, you know, the corator's spiking. And I said, the corator's spiking? Let me take a look at the data. I take a look at the data. And boy, the corator's spiking. And then I take a look at the um, azole levels. And I look at the azole levels, which they used to test for me once a shift. Boy, what a, what a nice plant that was. And here, yeah. they're at rock bottom. I go, what the heck is going on? But they're feeding the same amount as they always fed. Well, here I take a look at the chlorine levels, and the chlorine levels are through the roof, through the roof. And when I graph the chlorine levels versus the azole levels versus the corrosion rates, here's the chlorine and the corrosion rates going up together, and here's the azole going exactly the opposite way. So what I did was I had them back off on the chlorine feed. We had we, we set it for three quarters of a part per million instead of one part per million, which they had gotten up to one and a half parts per million. Well, I backed them off on the chlorine setting, and what happened was that the chlorine levels started coming down, the copper corrosion rates started coming down, and the azole popped back up. So why why do I encourage testing for azoles? Well, I have a friend that works for one of the consulting companies. 
And we all know, oh, the consulting companies, they're bad. They're not water treaters, they're just the cops for the water treatment industry. And he's a pretty good friend of mine. And we ended up in the same city at one time. I said, well, let's go have some dinner. So we go have some dinner. And I looked and said, what is your number one thing you're picking on when you go around to these plants that are treated by water treaters? What are you picking on to make yourself a consultant? And he looked at me and said, Azoles. Nobody's testing for Azoles. We've all, with complying with the CDC, started feeding oxidized biocides. Well, a lot of the people that aren't used to testing Azoles, they think, well, my Azole is going to be in there. There's nothing that's, that's going to go after my Azole. Well, here, the chlorine is going to go after the Azole, and it's going to take it out, uh, take it out of the water. It's going to react with it. It's going to be gone. So that's how they were making their money. They're walking around saying, hey, are, is your water treater testing your Azole? Are you on a chlorine program? Well, if you're on a chlorine program, you better be testing your azole to make sure there's still a residual there. How do you how do you know that that corrosion inhibitor is still there? Well, that's a great reason to test for it. You know, you brought something to me a couple of years ago that I want to thank you for because I, I've always tested azole. I was taught to do that, but I would carry this big 20-pound brick transformer around to uh, power the UV pin, and you said, no, 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 you don't need to do that. We have this portable system there. Can you please tell our audience about that? Because you are my hero for explaining oh, that one to wow. me. Thank you. Coming to Taylor, I came to Taylor 10 years ago because they were developing a colorimeter and they wanted to have some input from a field person. Well, I happened to be the local field person for a water treatment company and got to know these people. So come in and, and talk to us about all this stuff. Well, that eventually led to me coming in to work for Taylor and and uh, working with them on, the, on this colorimeter project as well as some, uh, some other projects. Well, I got to tell you, Trace, it was so much fun to see my phone ring and it be the phone number for R&D because R&D, we got some really (laughs) bright people over in R&D and they get excited about something in this process and research the heck out of stuff. Well, one of the days when my phone rang, I saw it was R&D and I I excitedly pick up the phone and my vice president of R&D says, oh my gosh, that's great you're in. I got to come up. Can can you wait a few minutes? I got to show you something. And it was always something good. And so Steve rides his car up to my office and he comes in and he's got this device in his hand that looks like almost like electric toothbrush, a big electric toothbrush, uh, maybe, maybe closer to a flashlight. And I said, what is that? He goes, this is a UV pen. It's called a SteriPen. Now, all you people out there that are hikers and campers, you're probably going to go SteriPen. I use that to, to purify my water when I'm out camping. And that's exactly right. That's what it was used for. Well, it just so happens that this SteriPen is more powerful than the typical plug-in UV digestion systems. It's also a heck of a lot less in cost. So you can replace your $400 plus UV digestion system that now you got to find a, an outlet to plug into it so you can use it. And your lamps, they probably last a year and they cost about $150, $170 or so. Well, now you can replace it with this like $70 battery-operated, non-plug-in UV digestion pen. It, it is absolutely fantastic. I, I, I got to tell you, I almost hugged Steve for finding out. I was like, that is the coolest thing. <laughs> oh, people are going to love this. And now the only downfall with it is you've got to make sure that you use high quality lithium batteries with it. And you're probably going to get about 30 tests out of the set of four batteries. So I'm, I'm just being upfront. That's, that's the only downfall to it. But again, you're not spending $170 or so a year on the replacement lamps, and you're not having to find a place to plug in. It's portable. It's quick. It's also, in the time that it takes you to do a UV digestion for phosphonate, which is 10 minutes, 
or azole, which I believe is five minutes. This TheraPen does it in three minutes. There you go. So, uh, and as always, I would encourage people out in the Scaling Up Nation to run your tests in the regular fashion and then run it alongside with this. That way, if you have any questions, you've answered it for yourself. But I got to tell you, having something that I don't need a wheelbarrow to carry around to the accounts and it fits nice and neat in my test kit. I thank you for that advice. It was awesome. Oh, it's good. I'm just, I'm just bringing with you what our R&D finds and it's, it's exciting to work with them. Excellent. Well, I'm sure that you get calls saying, I, I did everything that direction said, but I'm not getting the right answer. And then you start talking with people and sure enough, there probably is a common mistake that most people make. So here is your voice out to the Scaling Up Nation. What do you want people to know that the biggest mistake people do in testing is so they don't do it anymore? Oh, what is the most important thing to do in testing? It, everything is, is cumulative. All the errors you might have in technique, and uh, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be talking about that at the AWT on Saturday. We're going to talk about how interferences uh, can help you gain business and, and keep business. And uh, there, there's quite a few things that come together. It all starts with proper sample collection. I, I see people that don't collect the sample properly, don't flush the line, they don't rinse out their bottle three times. It's always funny to see an experienced water treater collect a sample because they'll be talking with you and they'll be collecting a sample. They'll be flushing the line. They'll be triple rinsing their bottles, not even thinking about it. Not, not even think about it. It's absolutely hysterical when, I, when, I, when I'm out with people and I see them doing that. It's automatic. And then, so it starts with sample collection. Make sure you got a representative sample and a fresh sample. And then the other thing is, you know, read the directions. There's a lot of interesting stuff in, in the directions. And, and too many times we learn how to do testing from our bosses or our managers or our trainers and that kind of stuff. And they may have gotten into some habits that may work for them. But again, for, uh, you know, as time goes on and that herbal uh, or not herbal, the um, urban legend gets uh, passed along and from one ear to another ear to another ear gets, gets out of, it gets out of whack and it, it leads people down a bad direction. So read the directions. The way I learned how to test, oh, Trace, this is, this is a, a funny story is I had a guy that was named Ron Humphreys. Ron Humphreys was our mechanical guy for our district, and I nicknamed him the Pump Master General. And what he did was they, they put him with me, put actually me with him for a day, and he was going to teach me how to do testing. Here's how he taught me how to do testing. We had our heart, it was a refinery, we had a hard hat and earmuffs on, and we went around to all the systems with the marked bottles and collected all the samples. Then he took me back into this, into this building, and he had me carry these two big test kits in and put them up on the table. He handed me a book that had all of the instructions in it, told me what I needed to test for what samples, and said, I'll see you in two hours. <laughs> Good luck. What was cool about that, I mean, I'm, I'm there like, oh, this isn't, this isn't fun at all. But I read the directions. I started out fresh. I didn't start out with somebody telling me how to do the test. I actually read the manufacturer's directions and did it. Now, I had about eight samples. So I got a chance to do each one of the tests eight times. After you've done something eight times, you pretty well know it. You pretty well know it. So that, that's, how, that's how I began testing water systems. And it, it developed good technique. Uh, I am, I'm very <laughs> insanely fastidious, I guess, about my numbers, that they've got to be consistent. And uh, that kind of led into my, my second part of my, my life at as a water treater i went to a lot of plants where they did all the training uh, all the testing for me so then instead of being the person doing the testing i became the person 
training these people, doing the testing, making sure they were consistent and getting consistent result results that I could uh, consult from. So a lot of stuff in technique. Don't take triple rinsing your bottle, collect, letting the sample flush long enough and, and reading the directions for granted. Uh, by the way, there was a hospital that I did some work in that they finally caught me one of the service visits and gave me a five-gallon bucket. You know why they gave me a five-gallon <laughs> bucket? Because I was leaving water all over the floors <laughs> when, I was, when I was flushing the samples. So, I mean, if you're going into a place that's a data center or a hospital or something like that, and you think, well, I, I don't want to get any water on the floor, uh, and I'm just going to take a quick sample, well, take a five-gallon bucket with you. Make sure that you let that, that, that sample line flush long enough and then get your sample. So don't, don't leave that. Great advice. Don't make that uh, yeah, a reason why you're not flushing your sample line out enough. Yeah, we try to leave five-gallon buckets at uh, the majority of our accounts, and then they're not there the following month. <laughs> so that's that's the issue that we have. Well, what you got to do is you got to so write you... in them that that's, that's poison in them. Oh, there you go. I haven't thought about that. All right. So you heard it here first. <laughs> so you've done a lot of testing. You've been around equipment for a while. So how do you know when the answer you get is the real answer or there's an interference or something else is going on? How do you know that? Well, that's that's a, that's a great question. You. Compare it to the other systems, like let's say a boiler system. And when I teach my plants about their boiler system, I say, let's take a look at the path of the water. Okay, it's coming from uh, the pretreatment. It's coming into the feed water tank or the deaerator, and that's becoming feed water, which is going in the boiler, which makes the condensate. The condensate comes back around and goes into the feed water. Well, if you get a strange result, let's say you get a real high hardness level in your feed water get a high hardness level in your feed water, we'll always train them to take a step back in the system to where the water is coming into that system. So it's going to be my makeup water. It's going to be my condensate. And I'm going to take a look at those two waters. Now, if that inter- if that high level exists in both of those systems, then or one, one or the other system, then I can find, okay, where this is coming from. And I feel assured that, okay, uh, I do have a problem going on. But if it's, if it's not in either one of those systems, well, it may be an interference. And for hardness, one of the interferences uh, is iron, iron and copper, metals. Metals will interfere with your hardness test. And on those feed water systems, you're doing a real low-level hardness test. You're hoping to have less than 0.1 parts per million in in my feed waters, in all of our feed waters. And so if there's a little bit of metal in there, it might turn up to be 5 or 10 parts per million. And you're like, wow, that's that's not right. That doesn't seem like the right level. And you kind of get this weird fading endpoint, we call it, where you where you put your indicator, I'm sorry, you put your buffer in and then you put your indicator in and it's supposed to turn blue if there's no hardness in there. Well, if there's hardness in there, it might turn red or purple depending on the indicator that you're using. Well, you add a couple of drops of, of titrin in there and it turns blue. And then it slides back to purple. Well, you add a couple more drops of titrin in there and it turns blue. And then it slides back to purple again. It's kind of like a magic trick. And that's a really good indication that you have some metals in there that are, that are tying up the titrin, which is keelant. Keelant loves metals. Calcium and magnesium are a metal. Iron and copper are metal. But it prefers, that keelant prefers the iron and the copper. So it will go attach one of those iron and coppers, leave the calcium and magnesium alone, which will turn the sample back to red. Just uh, how do you tell if you have interference? If it, you know, think about, what you've got, look at the waters before going into it, compare your test results today with your test results that have historically been there. Uh, Chances are interferences pop up and they're not consistently there. 
Um, they just pop up all of a sudden. And if you're getting some strange readings, a, a flag should go off and uh, flag should go up and say, okay, I got to take a look at this system. Well, of course, the first thing you're going to do if you get a really strange test result is go get a new sample and retest. Sure. Go get a new sample, retest. It, it may just have been the way you collected the sample. But it's, uh, it's kind of like uh, almost uh, CSI. I mean, you, you have your dead body is a strange water sample. And now you got to figure out what the heck's <laughs> going on. That's an interesting analogy. I like it. So here we go. The number one tip that you want all the listeners out there to know that's going to save them time, frustration, what have you, what is it? Understand that testing your water systems is controlling your program. You got to test for the right analytes. You got you to do it on enough of a basis that you know your system's under control. Uh, coming from the background that I come from, uh, we used a lot of tracers. We used a lot of fluorescent tracers. And we'd have these monitors up in the wall that would be measuring the amount of fluorescent tracer that's in the water. Well, it's easy to get complacent and say, oh, it's supposed to read 100, so I'm good to go. I don't need to do any more testing. Well, what happens, and let's talk about cooling water systems. What happens in cooling water systems is stresses can change. Stresses can change. And, and when those stresses change, and it could be temperature, it could be uh, suspended solids, uh, it could be a different water source. There are all these different stresses that go in a system that will stress your treatment chemical in different ways, some of them more, some of them less. Well, if you just rely on that 100 that's reading on your monitor and don't test periodically for your active ingredient, well, then you, you could be making a mistake. And I, I, chances are, I'd say you, you are making a mistake. Um, so that's one of the things to do. And the other thing is to make sure that you get a, an accurate test. And uh, phosphonate's one of those uh, squirrely tests. You got to be real careful. There's, uh, there's an easy test that's out there that's just a, a pill and a titrant. And okay, I'm off and running. But what that pill and that titrant don't do is one of the things that interferes with that phosphonate test is fluoride. I believe that I was told that every municipality that's over 100,000 people adds fluoride to their drinking water. And the makeup... It helps with mind control. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, yes, it's the grand conspiracy. So if you've got a system that's on municipal drinking water as makeup, chances are you got fluoride in your cooling tower. And that's going to be a positive interference on your test. It's going to be a positive interference on your test. If you use that simple test to test for your, for your phosphonate, you may be getting fooled that you think you have enough phosphonate in your water and you may not. That's why... The, the good tests, and, and they're available from three reputable manufacturers, have fluoride masking agents. And you may want to say, oh, well, that might be part of the grand conspiracy, too. The fluoride masking agent doesn't do anything for they're just trying to sell more chemical. It's, <laughs> my kids are out of college, so I don't need to sell more chemical. That's all done. But the fluoride masking agent is a very important part of the phosphonate test. So I will encourage you to make sure that when you're testing for phosphonate, which is your active chemical ingredient, treatment chemical in the majority of your cooling water systems that you tested properly and you make sure you're using a fluoride masking agent. Great advice. Well, this has been a, a great interview, but we're not quite done yet. We've got the lightning round to go to. So are you ready for that? Sure. <laughs> All right. So you can go back in time to the very first day that you were a water treater. What advice would you give yourself? It would be to 
use your resources and develop your resources and, and network. At the beginning of my career, I had a trainer who was an area manager who very much told me to do that. Make sure you use your resources. And he made it so that during my training, I got a chance to be with everybody in my district and a whole bunch, a whole bunch of other people. And I got to learn their specialties, where their strengths were, where their weaknesses were, and especially noting where their strengths are. And then when I got into the thick of it and I didn't know the answer, I would call on those resources. And uh, the, the very nice part about maturing in this industry is when you start getting those phone calls and you're the resource, that's, that's the fun part. But don't be afraid to use your resources. Your resources, especially you young professionals out there. In fact, Michelle Farmery invited me to one of the first meetings that they had with the young professionals. And I thought, oh, wow, she's considering me a young professional. This is really great. Until she went up there and said, <laughs> oh, by the way, we've got some gentlemen, gray-haired gentlemen in the back. There's, there's four or five of them back there, and you should consider them your resources. You should, you should listen to these guys and talk. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. I'm the old Unfortunately, guy. Unfortunately, I remember that because I was standing next to you. <laughs> well, you're still a young guy. But I was like, oh, my, my ego deflated. I was like, oh, come on, Michelle. <laughs> you don't consider me a, a young professional? Shoot. Use your resources. They're all around you. They're very willing to help you. Uh, I field phone calls about many other topics but the, the, other than testing. Uh, from from people during a week's time, and uh, you'll you'll be surprised how many people were willing to help you and give you advice in the AWT and and w- with all your other associations, whatever they might be. Use your resources. The worst thing you can ever do is, is try to cover something up or ignore it. And for like let's say ego purposes, why well, don't want to tell my boss I'm in trouble or I don't know what's going on or that I don't have the answer to this, so I'm just gonna not tell him. That's a real big mistake. Because some competitor is going to come along and is going to save the day for them. And your boss is going to say, why'd you lose that account? Well, I was having problems. Why didn't you come to me? That we're here for you. We're here for you as a resource. So use your resources. Great advice. Well, I'm a big reader and you don't know what you don't know. And you can get a lot of information for books from books. So I always ask people, I, I want to add to my reading list. So I want to know whether the last three books that you've read. Oh, last three books. I know my favorite one is uh, by a guy, and if you remember back a few years ago, he came and gave a talk at the AWT as David Noor. I'm a very, very mm-hmm. big David Noor fan. I get his emails. I've listened to a couple of his webinars, and he's got a book out that's called Co-Creation. Maybe not so much for the water treaters out there, but but uh, Trace for the for the business owners and other companies that may be manufacturers and, and have R&D and that kind of stuff. Co-creation is a, a wonderful book about really getting the right people in the room that have the right skill set. And the other person you want in that room is a representative of the customers. You may hmm. think that you're making something really cool and it may miss the mark with your customers. And you wonder, wow, I thought that was really cool. Where if you had taken the time and gotten your customers involved at the early onset of a project, they may steer you in a better direction. They may steer you in a better direction. And that's one of the fun things that I get to do here at Taylor is as much as I come out to you guys and represent Taylor, I'm also getting your ideas. And also, since I was one of you, I get to represent the customers when we're around that R&D table. I get to say, you know, okay, that's a really cool idea, but. I don't think I'm going to use it. Well, why wouldn't you use it? Well, because I do it this way. 
Now, if you can come up with a, a better solution than me doing it this way, then I then you know I'm on board. But co-creation from David Norris is one. Now, for anybody that's out there doing like a, a sales rep type job, along with service and that kind of stuff. There is a book, and I can't come up with the guy's name. And if you if you email me, I'll tell it to you. The name, it's selling with a story. It's selling with a story. Hmm. And this guy goes through talking about sales situations and and having certain stories that that fit. And Trace, you know that when, when I teach, I love to tell in stories. I love telling the story about uh, the deaerator up at Har- Harrisburg incinerator. How a little nugget of metal held open a spring on a spray valve and caused us to not have good oxygen levels. I mean, I, I, the stories tend to, and, and the real stories, not made up stories, stories tend to stick better and make you more memorable with the customer. Sometimes it may be for a good reason, but sometimes it may be for a bad reason, but you're more memorable. <laughs> and the more memorable you are, the, chance, the better chance you have of winning some business or maintaining some business. So telling with a story is is a very interesting. It's on a, on an audio discs. Uh, that that's that's a good one. And then uh, other books I read. I'm a Stephen King fan. Oh gosh, uh, so I'm reading a lot of Stephen King. I used to be a Clancy fan. I read almost all Clancy's books before he passed away and before they got like ghostwriters. So that's that's the kind mm-hmm. of stuff that I I spend my winding down time with. Yeah, I think Stephen King is a, an incredible writer. I um I I can't be near a clown to this date. <laughs> <laughs> and they're they're putting the <laughs> what was that clown's name Pennywise was that what it was? I I don't remember Ugh, but I'm getting, uh, I'm getting chills just thinking oh about gosh. it. All right, so we're 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 moving on. Ugh, ugh clowns. <laughs> uh, if there are any clown water treaters out there, I apologize. Just don't come near me. All right, so uh, obviously with a life like yours, they're going to end up making a movie. Who plays you when they do it? Oh my gosh, my new boss seems to think, and I've had a couple other people tell me Steve Martin, and I said. Did, I can see that. And I said, what, did Steve Martin get hit by a truck recently? <laughs> he, he was a good-looking guy. That, I'm, I'm no Steve Martin. But, yeah, he, he says Steve Martin. He feels like he's talking Steve Martin all the time. So well, that might be it. All right. I can, I can see that. Did you know he's a big uh, banjo bluegrass yes. player? So uh, one of the guys that works here, he was playing for some of the stuff. I was like, I had no idea. I thought he was just a comedian. No, no. Back in the early 70s, before you were walking, probably, Trace, uh, he used to get on stage and play a banjo. Well, he's very good at it. In fact, somebody was telling me that he does a mastermind group to teach you how to play the banjo. That's So I guess you got to be pretty good to do that. That's pretty good. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So last question. You can talk to anybody throughout history. Who would you have that conversation with and why? Oh, that's, that's a really easy one. It'd be Elvis. I love it. Why Elvis? Elvis. I was born on Elvis Presley's 25th birthday. And Elvis is just, uh, I would love to talk. I'd love to to talk to Elvis. You know, if Elvis was alive today, what would Elvis be saying? He'd be saying. Did Elvis just join the Scaling Up Nation? Elvis would be saying, get me out of this box. It's dark in here and I can't breathe. (laughs) Well, cool. I had the opportunity to go to Graceland when we were reviewing Memphis for an AWT convention. And it was actually snowing. I was with Jim Lukanich. Oh, we were walking. We were actually getting off the plane of uh, Elvis's plane there at Graceland. And as you were looking out into the fields of, of Graceland, the couple behind us, I won't do the impression that I normally do with this story because I don't want to offend anybody, but they said, uh, we can die tomorrow. We've seen the most beautiful thing, snow on Graceland. <laughs> That's great. Hey, I, I got to so, add one thing. Chris, though. this is, yeah, you know, go ahead. Uh, 
you talk about if you could meet somebody. There is a, there's a book, and tying this into the books, there's a book that I'm a really, 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 really big fan of, and it's called Spin Selling, S-P-I-N, Spin Selling. It's Situation, Problem, Implication, Needs, Payoff, and it was written back in the late 90s by a guy by the name of Dr. Neil Rackham, Dr. Neil Rackham, and I had a chance to go to a conference, and he was one of the speakers, and my boss was there. And I went up and I shook his hand and I looked him in the eye and said, man, you know, I, I just love your book. This is absolutely fantastic. And when I came away, my boss said, boy, it looked like you were just meeting Elvis. <laughs> that look on your face, you were so impressed. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a very interesting book. And to tie this into David Knorr, what David Knorr says about selling, and it could not be any more true than for the water treatment industry, is like me, know me, trust me, pay me. That is the sales process. Like me, know me, trust me, pay me. Like me, you like me that you'll you'll talk with me. Know me, well, you know that, hey, I'm a stand-up guy. I'm going to do my part. I've I've got no hidden agendas. Trust me, you gain that trust. And and until you gain that trust from that customer, you don't ask for an order. Because if you get an order without the trust, well, it's probably just transactional business. And the next guy that comes in with the lower price is probably going to get that business. So when you have that trust, and think about it, Trace, all those accounts that you have that are good, solid accounts, they trust you completely. They trust you. They know you're going to do the job. They know you got. They know if they have a if they have to make a phone call and they've got a problem, you're there for them. I mean, it's that it's that trust. It's a two way street. So spin selling basically uh, supplements that where we talk about the basis of all selling is is trust. So uh, I would would advise that anybody that's in industrial water treatment sales, take a look at spin selling. All right. Well, I'll make sure to put all the books that you mentioned up on my show notes page. So nobody have to take their hands off the steering wheel to uh, take notes on these books. So this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, I knew it was going to be fun, Trace. And I really appreciate you inviting me to do this. Uh, it, it's, it, it is a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to to talk about what's going on and, and know your resources and be one of those resources. And uh, I, I appreciate you as a resource. Well, Chris, thanks again, and I'm sure we've got lots more questions to to have you back in the future. So every day we go to work and we think about how a properly treated cooling tower or boiler needs to be, but how often do we think about what happens if we aren't there and what happens when those systems aren't treated? So Chris, thank you for taking that perspective because a lot of times we're focused on the other end of that. And now we know how important our job is and what unsung heroes we all are in the water treatment industry. Folks, if you want the articles that we referenced today that Chris Golden uh, wrote, they're going to be on my show notes page. So make sure to uh, go to scalinguph2o.com and get those. And of course, uh, if you have any questions for me, Go ahead and get those into me as well. And I'm looking forward to talking with you next time on Scaling Up, where I hope you guys have a great week and look forward to coming back to you soon.